Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. We're going to bring to you today some news about a new flight to London. It's exciting. I mean, it's really exciting to be able to cross the big pond in one in one jump. For us, I mean, yes. Most yeah. people can do that yeah. anyhow. We, well, we, we, we used to be able to do it. Yep. But, but uh, thanks to the tireless effort of... Vi- of visit Pittsburgh and also the Allegheny County Department of Aviation or whatever they call themselves and run the airport. Yeah. They, they, they managed to convince British Airways to come back again so we will have non-stop transatlantic service starting as early as next week. Yes. So we caught up with the man in charge of visit Pittsburgh, Craig Davis, and talked to him and he could Barely contain himself with excitement because cause he's going over there and then he's going to come back on the first flight. Yeah, nice. I wanted to go on that. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't have any seats left. Otherwise, we would have been we yeah. would have been on there. You can be sure. Anyway, here's Craig. We're delighted to welcome an individual who is probably the. The, the most, the happiest or the second <laughs> happiest professional in Pittsburgh just now because one of his lifetime dreams just came true. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you announce it, Craig, from the visit, from visit Pittsburgh because you must take an enormous amount of the credit for making this happen. So please fire away. Well, let me let me qualify that, but I'll, I'll make the announcement first is that this coming Tuesday is the inaugural flight between London Heathrow and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, on British Airways, and um, we haven't had direct service in about 20 years from there, and uh, this is an amazing time for us and a time of celebration as we get ready for the very first Dreamliner to come across the pond in 20 years directly into Pittsburgh. So, But I want to make very certain that um, I, I qualify that, that um, this is an effort led by Christina Casotas and her yeah, team at the airport, but we certainly did play an assist in that process. Right. You know, the, when, the, when we moved to Pittsburgh, um, they had a direct flight to, to London. Yes. But it puts you in Gatwick, which is really inconvenient. Yes. Um, Heathrow is the – this is the – the brass rings, should they say, it, because it's a four-day-a-week uh, journey between the two. It will be uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, um, and it will be 52 weeks a year. So um, this is something very exciting for us, and it, it's a brand-new gateway for Visit Pittsburgh um, to bring in a lot more people from uh, Europe and, and uh, abroad. So as everybody knows, uh, London Heathrow is a, is a huge gateway airport, and uh, we're going to be able to really um, increase our international business as a result. It's probably the world's busiest connecting airport. I think. I think I read that. I think I read that somewhere. It may be, or it might be. If not, uh, if not, it's very busy anyway. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can you can get anywhere from there. You can't get anywhere from Gatwick except the Gatwick, except the Gatwick Express. On <laughs> exactly. <laughs> take it to on Victoria. the tube. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Heathrow is definitely better as long as there aren't any of those. What are those things that fly around? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no drone, no drones, no, no drones, no drones required. <laughs> yes, now, that's next year. Now, what, what, what will the plane that's going to be servicing the route? What will, what will it be? It's a Dreamliner, which is a Boeing something or other. Yeah, it's a Boeing. Oh my goodness, I, I, and I forget the capacity, but it, it's, a, it's at like, least four hundred. It's like a three eighty eight or something like that. Yeah, 
Is that one of those two-story ones? No, I don't believe so. No, they st- they quit they quit two two stories with the seven forty-seven. There's a seven forty-seven jumbo jet. And th- th- this is this is a new generation, right? And the, yeah, the Dreamliner. This is, I think, brand new equipment. And uh, the Dreamliner. This is part of the new fleet that British Airways purchased. And um, of course, you know, we we battled very hard to get um, service from London into Pittsburgh. Uh, we had to go to. A, uh, we had to battle against quite a few other non-gateway cities, and uh, we we emerged victoriously. Now, what was our big edge? Um, you know what? I was part of the, the, the deal. I was part of the, the the big edge is that there are a lot of Pittsburgh-based businesses that have London connections and vice versa. Um, you know, British Airways is very much of a British or uh, of a um, a commercial uh, uh, air, air, airline um, in terms of bringing business travelers back and forth. So I think that they felt that they had a really good connection there, and then they did. They came in like any other visitor, and they visited Pittsburgh. They toured around, they saw our restaurants, our shopping, our um, all of our attractions, and they were impressed. And that, I think, brought them over the edge. But there had to be a very distinct business case that was made, and that was made very, very well by our friends at the airport. Um, and then they asked us to talk about, you know, there's the front of the plane and there's the back of the plane. And they said very distinctly to us, listen, I think that we can fill the front of the plane because we have quite a few um, Pittsburgh-based businesses that will will take advantage of the direct flights back and forth. They said, you've got to help us make the case that people will get on the plane and come from Europe into Pittsburgh to visit Pittsburgh, and that's where we went to work. Right. Well, you've certainly had a lot of assist from uh, international publications, haven't you? Oh, we sure have. You know, we actually have on retainer um, a group called Black Diamond based out of the U.K. who help us, from a public relations standpoint, put Pittsburgh in the forethought of people from the UK, so we've been we've had them on retainer for almost two years now. So anticipating that we wanted to make um, British Airways as one of our end game plays, we put them on retainer and they started to develop storylines for us. And I think that that um, it worked out very very well. Well, it, it worked well in terms of being able to go through Heathrow. I guess at one time most of the American airlines were were destined to fly into Gatwick because. The, the British Airways didn't didn't want to give up any slots to foreign competitors at Heathrow. Yes, I understand that that was really the case. So we're really lucky. I mean, we have the right the right equipment, the right times of the day. We have the right days of the week, and then the right airport. So um, I think we're set up for success. Now, do you th- do you think you learned anything fr- from the experience with with Delta flying just a couple of days a week? Paris, did that, did that teach you anything? Well, I think it did teach us. Um, they're, they're, and Delta did a great job of actually listening to some of the feedback that we had had because that when they first started the service between Pittsburgh and um, and, and Paris, they they were using smaller equipment that wasn't really set up for um, overnight flights, that kind of thing, and they they eventually did replace that equipment with better equipment. It was just the fact that I think that you know you I I don't know what their business case was for not no longer continuing service in, with Pittsburgh, but I think that British Airways um, with the announcement was probably something that set it over the edge. But yes, we did learn a lot. Well, it, it's 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 marvelous. Now, what's it what's it going to be like inside the plane? Is there is there 
business class and first class or just business class? No, it's it's just business class. As I okay. understand, business class, and then they have premium economy, and then full economy. Oh, okay. So they have something they have something similar to the premium economy that American flies. Yes. In yeah. and out to Pittsburgh. Exactly, and they've got quite a big premium economy session actually. Well, I I, I look forward to this personally because I've spent more than my portion of my life in either the Philadelphia or the Charlotte <laughs> airports yeah. waiting. Exactly. Um, it's interesting because I am going over um, I'm going over on Friday of this week and we're going to come back on the, the inaugural flight comes back to Pittsburgh on Tuesday the 2nd. And on Friday I am going through um, through uh, Charlotte to get to, to London. Funny. So it'll be nice <laughs> I can I can cut that out uh, for, for once in my life. <laughs> so, exactly. so, so you're actually not you're not flying British Airways uh, on the way. No, I'm not flying. I'm flying American there, and then British Airways back. Oh, okay, okay. No, it, it's interesting. One, one of the one of the advantages of a direct flight, not not mentioned in the newspaper this morning, which ha- which had a good story on on the subject, and yes, it's, Mark it's, how, it's how we got in touch with with you and knew you were the man to talk to. But s- since we travel across the Atlantic s- several times a year, w- one of the biggest problems is the connecting airports themselves. So Charlotte and Philadelphia are such incredibly busy airports that your ch- your chance of a misconnection is altogether too high. And they, they, there's a factor associated with flying, being able to fly direct. But there's a, an even more important factor, a security factor that says, I'm not, I'm not going to, count on the fact that I have to look at the weather in Philadelphia or oh, the weather in Charlotte. Or, and, and we've, we've gone some cockamamie routes uh, in, been, in, in, yeah. order, in order to be able to get there. Through, and, through uh, Chicago, through uh, D.C., through Toronto, I mean, enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the list goes on, yeah. And, and, then, and then, of course, there's always a good chance they'll lose your bags. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I had, knock on wood, some pretty good luck getting over there in the past, but you're completely right. You know, the, a lot of the, the airports that you just mentioned are hub airports, um, and then don't even talk about going through New York. Um, that oh, yeah. A lot of those are just so congested, and then especially if you said in the wintertime, but, you know, Pittsburgh is well known for being able to get the planes in and out of there. They're, they've got an incredible crew, and our weather is actually is is sometimes cloudy as it is here. You can always get a plane in and out, with yeah. very few exceptions. Our, our, our last trip, which was just before Christmas, we were we were we were getting ready to basically go tomorrow because of weather, because of weather across the Philadelphia airfield, um, which had. Travel, tra- traveled in enough across the country that people could see it coming. So the FAA did the prudent thing, but you don't want to be, to be prudent when you when your objective is to get there. Correct, <laughs> correct. Yeah, so, yeah, but this is going to be, I think, for people in Pittsburgh, based in Pittsburgh, and also for people that you know even want to start their U.S. journey in Pittsburgh in a city you can get into, and then our city is also positioned very close to the population of the United States and Canada. You can fly into Pittsburgh and be in a car ride uh, within two or three hours with most of the population. Right. So we really kind of pride ourselves on that, too. So we're looking beyond that. I think people from uh, joining cities, Cleveland, uh, Youngstown, they, I think our catchment area is them as well. 
Well, I hope you have a wonderful party time. Also, in addition to business, <laughs> thanks, Ed. I think that yeah, we're gonna we're gonna um, do a, we're going to have a reception uh, there in in London on the Monday night before we go. We're bringing a lot of our you know our customers and our um, our media hopefuls, and you know we're bringing them all together and going, we're going to tell the Pittsburgh story. That's great. Great. Where, where, where are you going to eat? I don't know yet. I'm, um, we have our annual meeting tomorrow, and I've been doing nothing but concentrating go. on that. So I was in London uh, about six months ago, and you know you can't find a bad place to eat in London. <laughs> but um, I, trust me, um, don't worry about me. I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if we could be of any help advising, check us out. Thank you so much. Email and uh, have fun and. Thanks for all your good Thank work. Thank you, Peter. And we, and we, en- we enjoyed being able to put a news item on our website, our new website as of Monday. We were able to announce the, the, uh, the British Airways flight coming out of Pittsburgh. I wonder what we're going to do tomorrow. <laughs> follow, <laughs> yeah, follow stay that. tuned. <laughs> okay, Thank you great. again so much for having me. Have great. fun. Have a good meeting, too. You, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, so so now you have the story of how it all happened and something something about what it really means to people who like us make our home here in the Steel City, but we tend tend to spend quite a lot of our time other places too. So anyway, we're going to be back after a short break in a, in another country. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and we're also welcoming back Katie Parla, who we've interviewed before from her perch in Rome. She gives us really good information about dining in that city and throughout Italy. Um, and in this book just released, Food of the Italian South, um, she turns her attention to a, a part of Italy that uh, is not really on the basic tourist track, uh, it's not Rome, Florence, Venice, Luca, you know, that sort of thing. It is south, and it is a different cuisine. Um, few people realize how and, and diverse. It's an, it's an exciting, fun part of the country to go to as well, yeah. as, we, as we can testify, because we've been there. Yes, and um, it's it, Italy is such a diverse country. You can't say you know Italian food if you just take an example of, of one part of the com- country. And the other thing about Katie is that she's um, interwoven um, bits of history that I actually didn't actually tie in. Yeah, I didn't. I I knew, but I didn't tie it in with it. So so she intermingles with this history, culture, and so forth. Uh, Let's listen to Katie talk about these very mouth-watering dishes in the south of Italy. We love having Katie Parla. I mean, what she doesn't know about Italy and its food is probably not worth even mentioning. Her latest book is called Food of the Italian South, 
I like, of course, the subtitle, which is Recipes for Classic, Disappearing, and Lost Dishes. And, Katie, you made a point of of defining this geographically. It's not um, southern Italian, because that would include Sicily and Sardinia. Um, But it's the south. Tell us the area you're talking about. So, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm always happy to chat with you guys about Italy. We well, you know um, so much, and, you know. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I sort of drew this geographic distinction because, though Sicily is incredible, um, there are many, many existing cookbooks that cover that island. And instead I want to focus on what the sort of, like, administrative definition of South Italy is, so the lower peninsula, uh, Puglia, Calabria, Campania, Basilicata, Molise, and those are the five regions um, that the book covers, um, and as you mentioned, details lost, disappearing, and classic dishes with a sort of heavier emphasis on the class, the, the, the lost and disappearing rather than the classics. Now, you live in Rome, but it's clear that you've spent a lot of time in the South. Yeah, and in the end, Rome is now just a one-hour high-speed train ride uh-huh. from Naples, which is the gateway to the south. So I'm down south a lot. It's the place that I go when I want to take a holiday. Um, when I'm thinking about pitching stories for articles, I try to find an interesting topic to cover because I think, and you know this very well, Rome, Florence, and Venice are these perennial favorites, and they get a lot of oh, coverage yeah. and a lot of attention. They don't need... PR. So my goal was to shine a light on some of these places that I think are really special, really unique, have incredible food, and we're travelers. If, you know, they leave their checklist of monuments at home and are more interested in absorbing culture, can go and have a real adventure. When did we go to Puglia the first time? Puglia in 1999. 1999. It was funny. Oh, wow. There were no tourists. They changed the time a bit, but it's still not over-exploited like some other places. It's wonderful. There were a lot of of soldiers, though, guarding against the arrival of Albanians. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, we felt very very safe because there was a brigade of Coast Guards who were were staying in the same hotel we were. (laughs) So, well, anyhow, so uh, you, I mean, I've read a lot of books and I've spent a lot of time in Italy and I learned a lot from this book. And it's, I get so many cookbooks. I enjoy reading yours. You you elucidate things that I've had questions in the back of my head about for a long time. Well, and I'll ask you in the course of this interview, but let's talk first of all how you organize the book itself is important because you do it the way Italians eat, in courses, right? That's correct. And I was thinking about how to best communicate the Italian South and its cuisine, and so it made total sense to treat the chapters like courses with Mm -hmm. two additions, pizza and bread, and cocktails, and Dita CV. Yeah, I like um, that. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, the Tasting Rome book was a little bit more abstract in its division of recipes because Romans are busy people in a chaotic city and, and don't always sit down to the antipasto, primo, secondo, contorno, dolce, mm-hmm. whereas in the south you're more likely to encounter that at uh, your daily meals. You know, the, the information that um, that you give, I liked 
your explanation of measurements because I'm I'm here with a, a bunch of recipes, so-called recipes from my family, which of course is Sicilian, so not necessarily filled with things like the Cucidada recipe includes one jar of um, grape jelly. <laughs> Yeah. No indication. And in fact, if you'd asked my grandmother, she'd think you were a little retarded if you needed to have any ex- further explanation. Now, that, now there's a word. Yeah, that, and that's there's a word for that, Katie, right? Like Bob yeah. There's, I mean, there there are a couple of concepts sort, sort of tied up in a, the Italian recipe writing traditions. Um, often, Italian cookbooks are simply lists of ingredients without any idea of what quantities are used, and sometimes those lists of ingredients just have Q dot B dot next to them, that yeah. is quanto basta, or however much you need. <laughs> but I would also say to complicate things, both in the ingredients list as well as in the procedures, um, often critical information is left out because the people who are writing these recipes are taking for granted that certain people will know exactly what goes into it versus foreigners from another region or another town that might not necessarily know a folding step or um, a cooking step. So it makes things quite uh, exciting when it comes to reverse engineering. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother, I, she was trying to explain this. Um, it's like a sphinge, you probably heard of it, this kind of donut oh, yeah. with the anchovy in it. And the, so I was asking her about kneading the dough and preparing the dough. And she looked at me and she said, until it's ready, <laughs> So that's what you had to go by. Totally. Yeah. Well, I, I, so you give more information than that, however. No, I, I, I remember. Yeah, I want people to be able to execute the recipes properly, so I don't assume any prior knowledge. Uh-huh. No, I, I remember when we went to Abruzzo, when the guy who was our guide drove us all the way to Abruzzo to one of Gustiamo's suppliers. Uh-huh. And uh, gr- grandmother, Nana... And what do you call Mrs. They they were in. The, we were there for lunch. They were in the kitchen. They never came out. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. They they, they spent the entire afternoon from one until about four o'clock Cooking in the afternoon in in the kitchen. Never even emerged. That's not unusual, and in particular, uh, in the south more so than in you know other parts of Italy. Um, you find that women are really confined to the kitchen and may not even participate in a meal, even if it's co-ed, even if it features, you know, female guests from out of town. Um, so you can imagine that that makes the recipes even more sort of secretive and private. Yeah, I mean, I don't picture in my mind my grandmothers, either one of them, actually sitting down and eating with us. I picture them at the stove cooking. Anyhow, no, what part of Italy is your background? So my maternal grandmother's family is from the Provincia di Potenza in Basilicata, so right inside the instep. It's a super poor place even to this day and was really a desperately impo- impoverished zone when they left just after unification in the late 19th century. Yeah, and see, that was another explanation you gave me about how the uh, reunification actually affected the poverty in, in these towns. And, and when you're talking about uh, everybody leaving because they had no money, no jobs, um, I remember in all these little tiny towns, they had little plaques saying, 
how many young men had left. Yeah, and I think that's a theme throughout the South, and it is really the product of a set of choices made in in Turin um, by the House of Savoy and in Rome, um, which led to a, a you know a deliberate neglect of southern economic development, which you know we can see the impacts of to this day. It's really funny. Again, in our trip to Abruzzo, one of the villages we stayed in was called Valletta Barea or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the amazing thing is we discovered there's a, there's a club of Valletta Barea in Pittsburgh. People in, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, and we went to uh, the local bar and um, with our host and... Uh, they, we had to wait for the owner of the bar to call us because he had spent his entire life as a porter at a hotel, hotel in Pittsburgh. Yeah, too and funny. It's, it, it was amazing, and, and he knew our councilwoman. <laughs> Darling, yeah, it was strange. Now you have you pick up some issues. I don't know how many arguments I've had over Italian wedding soup. Could you give us the real scoop on that? Because people of don't believe me at all when I tell them that's not what it was. <laughs> Italian wedding soup is an English term, uh, or rather I should say American English term, to describe a vegetable and meat, mixed vegetable and mixed meat brothy soup. It's a mistranslation. The Italian is minestra maritata, which means wedded broth. Yes. And it was very typical in Campania and other parts of the South as well um, to harvest wild bitter greens for this uh, holiday dish, which is served both at Christmas as well as at Easter time. So you can imagine the recipes change depending on the season, depending on the right. exact location. And, you know, in the 90s and early aughts, there was a lot of sort of repurposing of Italian recipes, retranslation by among others, Food Network stars and, you know, people who weren't actually fluent in Italian mistranslated this dish. And I can assure you that no Italian would ever serve soup at a wedding. It would be like a <laughs> complete humiliation for the family for generations. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you you like the colatura di Alici, and I agree with you that the um, uh, Gustiano probably has the best locally, I mean, in the States. Do you think so? Yeah, Gustiamo imports Nettuno brand Colatora, uh -huh. um, which is made by, you know, four people, a family at the edge of central Citata, which is a really tiny village, the southern part of the Amalfi Coast. Um, they take years to produce their Colatora, which is no longer the standard as there are ways to expedite the process of making the savory anchovy sauce. Um, they're really good at what they do. They're super kind and generous, and their product is wonderful. And I think some people might have sticker shock when they see a small bottle is maybe 24 euros, but know <laughs> that a lot of work and time and effort and attention and skill go into that bottle, and that you only need a couple drops per person for most of the recipes. Besi right. Besides, the if, if they really knew what they were doing in the kitchen, they would already have tried Vietnamese fish sauce. <laughs> That's, no, that's no. Correct. Which, sell, which sells for about the, sells for about the same price. <laughs> yeah. um, the, there was something else. That came. Um, I've often wondered what is the difference when you talk about horse meat, which offends most um, um, Americans. I know um, it, we would see the shops for the um, 
Equus and we see um, uh, the um, Cavallo. Um, a Machalidia uh, Equina, Equina is a horse butcher, and mm-hmm. there's no distinction between a horse butcher and one who's selling Cavallo per se. But generally speaking, uh, Machalidia Equina has a majority of horse meat, whereas you know another butcher that also has horse meat might advertise as sort of a more mainstream butcher and not define it. And he would be back a- in the day. There were you know there were there were butchers that just dealt with pork, others that just dealt with horse, and now people need to diversify their offering to survive. So it's very rare that you. I mean, I still have never seen a horse butcher who only sells horse meat. They typically also sell other things. But it's really strong in, in the south. As in, in, Pul- to, in Puglia, in particular. Puglia was yeah for sure. Yeah, Puglia and Basilicata both. And then we, we also had the, we also had the uh, Grand Prix in, yeah, in, 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 in yeah. and then you item called Grand Prix, <laughs> which, which was which was horse meat, but but it's, it, seemed, it seemed to me that it must have been the slowest horses rather than the fastest one. Um, yeah, the original horse recipes from the South were generally stews that were used to break down tough meat of old animals. So. Now, you know, that's no longer the case, but they slaughter, you know, horses elsewhere. And so you can definitely eat, a, let's say, a fresher a fresher meat, a less tough one. Now, now, now let, let me ask your response to this question. Somebody told us a, a secret about the South Calabria, and in particular licorice. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, they, and they they told us that the Queen of England has a standing order for licorice. From this, from, Calabria. from this town in Calabria, it starts with a. Starts yeah, with a I P. can't remember the name of the town. I think it town. starts with a P. Well, Rosano in the southeastern part of Calabria is where, like, a lot of the, a lot of the licorice is harvested. I'm not sure about the Queen of England standing <laughs> order. That's something I wouldn't rule out, but I've never heard that before. <laughs> um, go, but you? yeah, I mean, Calabria is a place where licorice and onions and. Um, Fermented chilies are, you know, all part of the cuisine, so it's a place that almost demands strong flavors. Uh-huh. And we had it with a, uh, in the north, actually, with it, was it saffron pasta? Oh, oh yeah. yes, yes, with yes. It was at um, uh, Le Calandre. Yeah, it was at a Michelin three-star restaurant Le called Le Calandre. Well, she knows Le Calandre. And it was... Oh, I know Le Calandre, yeah, for sure. sure. Outside of Padova. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Um... Another area of I'm always involved with arguments about, and I was asked to write a, a column about it, um, or a feature about it once, uh, and everybody you talked to had a different idea, and that's the, uh, the, the Feast of Fishes, Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Okay, know, so this is another thing like the Minestra Maritata wedding soup. Uh-huh, if you only it. served seven fishes at a Christmas Eve meal, would be everyone would ridicule you for serving a meager feast. <laughs> so the Feast of Seven Fishes is an Italian-American tradition, one that's mainly focused in the Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, tri-state area. It is definitely custom to serve fish on Christmas Eve. The number seven, however, was invented by someone of unknown identity in the United States after immigration. Who probably sold fish for a living. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah, trying, yeah. To, trying to bump up sales. Now, Katie will tell you that only seven fishes would be a disgrace. 
for a family to do that. It's much Absolutely. bigger feast, isn't it? Yeah. You- oh, yeah. I mean, a dozen dishes is not unusual. Um, and depending on where you are in the South, you might have uh, fresh fish as your main or salted cod. But typically, fried fish occur in some incarnation, anchovies, um, octopus salad. Um, the individual dishes might change from village to village or house to house, but those things, those items I just mentioned are protagonists. You know, I, I, you sort of touched on this, but, um, about the overfishing in the South. Um, but there was an issue where um, some, some, a friend in Australia went back and was appalled that they were using uh, dynamite um, to get the fish out of out of water. He, he, he was a Greek. I think he was Greek. Was he Greek? Yeah, he was Greek. Well, but I I think it's true in Italy too, isn't it? Is it true? I mean, I know there's a lot of overfishing and a scarcity of fish, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Mediterranean and its various seas, the Ionian, Adriatic, and Tyrrhenian, all of which touch the south, have been overfished for millennia. Yeah. And today the big issue is trawlers from companies, Italian and otherwise, that scoop up you know every fish along their path, regardless of whether they're protected or not. And because these large companies can afford to pay fines, they routinely ignore European Union laws and uh, laws passed by Italy to protect fish supply, um, which is why I always recommend educate yourself a little bit on what's sustainable where, and there are many websites where you can see what types of fish um, you should be eating in order to follow a more uh, environmentally sound approach. But uh, anchovies and sardines, which feature throughout the book, um, are definitely uh, are definitely things people should seek out, not just because they're sustainable, but also because they're delicious and really um, are anchors of the coastal cuisines of the South. And I hope people take your advice and, and, and get the anchovies and salt rather than in the, uh, uh, the oil. Me too. Yeah, and also I think the same thing goes with capers, by the way. <laughs> so, Definitely. Yeah. Now, you highlight individuals. I would call them colorful characters. Um, I'm looking at the um, Franco Pepe. Tell us about Franco. Franco is a uh, third-generation baker. Um, he is a pizzaiolo from Cagliazzo, which is a small town in the Alto Casertano subregion of Campania. I've never even been there, I don't think. Have we ever been there? I don't think so. No, no. no. That's off the beaten um, path. There's just a big draw because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and is basically, you know, South Italy's answer to Versailles. It was the Bourbon Dynasty's massive oh, really? compound. It's spectacular. But, you know, it's 40, well, maybe even less, a 30-minute drive from the Reggio di Caserta, as it's known. Al- the Alto Casertano subregion is really rural and beautiful, and that's where Franco Pepe um, was born and raised. And about, let's see, Six or seven years ago, he opened a pizzeria in his hometown, which was desolate at the time. He was dedicated to hand-mixing dough and making really thoughtful pizza, which you might think is a given in the South, but I would argue that a properly made pizza is hard to come by because even people who love pizza and love making pizza often cut corners in order to hit a price point um, that is profitable. So... 
you know, Franco finds this balance between value and quality, and he transforms this dilapidated building into a three-story pizzeria. Um, it's a medieval building, needed a lot of work, and today he's expanded a bit because it's so popular. In fact, Franco is credited by locals for reviving the city's economy, and now where there were empty shops five or six years ago, now there are cafes and um, stores and all sorts of local businesses. So it's a real testament to how a pizza place can be a food destination and really revitalize local economies. Put that on our agenda. Yeah. <laughs> you know you know where it is? It's, a, well, it's, in, your, it's in your book. Yeah. Okay. Um, the place, his place, Franco Pepe's Pizzeria, is called Pepe Ingrani, and it's in Cayasso. All of this is in the book, so yeah. you don't have to worry about the spelling. Yeah. Good. Now, th- th- something that people should know about and don't in general realize the, the timeline of when various products, ingredients, actually appeared in Italy. And you have a nice section on that. Can you talk to, to about how it's a corridor country, obviously, Italy? Yeah. Also, we have to remember, I always urge people to read the front matter so that you know who was in charge of Italy when. Um, because, you know, Italy is a modern invention dating back to the mid or late 19th century. Before that, um, the entire South was under Spanish dominion. So you can imagine that when Spain was doing their colonial atrocities all over the New World, they were um, bringing botanical specimens with them to Europe and introducing them to their various territories, including, you know, what is today, Calabria and Campania. So that's where a lot of peppers, um, potatoes, squash, various legumes, and tomatoes landed, and were slowly incorporated into local cuisine. So some of the things that we think of as classically Italian, like tomatoes, yes. <laughs> um, were in fact very late to be incorporated into local cuisines because they didn't arrive until the late 15th, early 16th century, and then weren't adopted until even later than that. Yeah, pepper, peppers likewise, I guess, right? Peppers, exactly, yeah. Various yeah. peppers, Chilies. both sweet and uh, sweet and spicy. And I think everybody should check out your section um, on um, spirits. Um, especially, You have a, a nice section on Amaro, which is having a resurgence, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think Amaro as a concept... Um, has, you know, over the past decade really seen a resurgence as brands have invested in communication. Amaro is an Italian word, so it's already foreign to most people. When they find out that it's the Italian word for bitter, sometimes people are immediately put off. But really, it's a bittersweet digestif. Um, it works, And honestly, too. <laughs> what puts a lot of people off is that the most famous brand of Amaro is actually the German Jägermeister, which conjures all sorts of hangover nightmares, <laughs> but it's a it's an historic medicine that people use to promote digestion, um, to cure ailments, and we can use it in the same way today after a big meal. Right. Yeah, it's really funny. Our, our good friends, the Noninos, who are from Friuli, Vanessa, Julia, and of course they, they make lots and lots of super-duper grappa, but out of the blue, at Christmas time, we got a bottle of their new entry into distillates called Amaro. 
<laughs> it was a nice it's one. so good. It's no, Nino brand is. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, we've known them for years, and I love their products. And, uh, there's good and there's bad, and I'm, I'm going to revise my uh, pasta, dry pasta, um, on the basis of your favorite one, which I've not tried, um, and, yeah, and some other brands of vinegars and so forth that you recommend. The book is so worth reading through, uh, listeners, because you're going to learn so much about it and it's going to inform your choices. You have a whole broader view of the Italian South, and I think you're missing out if you don't go there. Um, Katie, it's a wonderful book. It's a very intelligent book, which is one of the things I appreciate the most about your writing, (laughs) that it's intelligent. And so what's next? Which, Which area next? Oh, that's a great question. First, I have to get through a 40-city nationwide uh-huh. book big. tour. So I, I, although I'm always tempted to think about the next move, I'm not letting myself do that until I've finished all my events. But I'm not going north. Let's put it that way. You're not. Well, does that bring us to Sicily? I'd like a, a good. You said there are lots of books on Sicily. And Sardinia is another one, right? Yeah, that's good. I know. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. Anyhow, thank you again for writing this, Katie Parla. Um, the book is called Food of the Italian South, and um, much success, please, on your tour and, and on your book sales. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our listeners today. My pleasure. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. We're going to close up today's program with... Someone, someone else who went south and found something very surprising and fascinating and interesting. A chef who grew up and cut his culinary teeth in Rhode Island, uh, fin- finished up somehow in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he has several restaurants. And here he tells the story of why he went, what it felt like when he got there, and what it's like now he's been there for a good long time. So here's Bruce Moffat. Welcome, Bruce. Bruce Moffat. Your book is called Bruce Moffat Cooks, but what you're really talking about is how you trans translated yourself or transformed yourself from a New England chef to a chef in the New South or the New South in a New South. Lots of people seem to be doing that, not necessarily from New England, but we've interviewed people who are from India that fused it with, and many people from India that fused with southern cooking, and I can't remember what some of the other ones were, um, Southeast Asia in general, um, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's a very distinctive and strong tradition, southern uh, kitchens, right? Yeah, it's very, uh, it's a little different than New England. Um, originally, I wanted to call the book um, South by North. Uh, <laughs> Meaning South Goodbye North. Um, but it was interesting when I first 
moved to Charlotte, I had a very small restaurant and a very limited budget, and I kind of um, felt like I had to get really involved in the local food scene uh, and meet local farmers in order to kind of be able to execute my vision. And it was just kind of funny when I first moved down, I would think, oh, it's tomato season. And yeah, it's the end of <laughs> yeah, it was the end of July, end of July, beginning, beginning of August, and then, um, and then only to realize that tomato season had started at the beginning of June. So it was a little, it was a little confusing for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, the community, though, you you did find maybe after a little bit, you found a very strong chef community there because we've interviewed lots and lots of uh, chefs from Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, it didn't start out as a strong chef community. I felt like we were all competing. I've been here for 18 years, so I felt like we were all competing for the same 200 customers. Uh-huh. And there and there was about um, I don't know, three or four chefs kind of doing what I was doing, so it wasn't very much. Mm-hmm. And so kind of as the culinary schools have arrived, as the economy's got, gotten better, um, I think we're just kind of in... Uh, we're really fast-forwarding our food scene, and I feel like, you know, within the last five, six years, we've really created a big chef community, and uh, it's nice because a lot of us do um, cooperative efforts together. Um, a lot of us hang out outside of work, and so it's been really nice to have a community of people that you can bounce ideas off of or you know, talk about where you're getting certain products and um, and and things like that. So it's been uh, nice to see the chef community evolve in Charlotte. Can you name a few parameters that you think are sort of key differences and uh, rec- recognizing them and enabled you to adapt as, as well as you have done? Um, key differences between the north and the south? Yes. Um, well, when I first came down here, I had uh, absolutely no idea what to do with with collard greens and sweet potatoes. I mean, they were everywhere in, in the market, and I had never really cooked collard greens before, and I really didn't, you know, the times that I had sweet potatoes, I didn't care for them. And so coming down here and just seeing things like collard greens and kohlrabi and um, sweet potatoes and uh, a lot of different ingredients that I've never really used much um, in the uh, up north. Um, so I started slowly but surely integrating those on to my menu, like pecans are big here. There's beautiful pecan trees and, and things like that. So I had to kind of learn how to integrate uh, that the, those food sources because they were really prevalent in the markets onto my, onto my menu because they were, uh, you know, what was available and what was fresh. And so kind of, Wrapping my brain around that from a from a northern sensibility, I think you know southern food um, is you get kind of that. It's a little bit heavier, I think. Uh, <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. You had to learn how to make sweet tea and uh, pimento yeah. cheese. <laughs> Yeah, but, but some, somewhere, somewhere along the way, you probably discovered Anson Mills, and, yep. and found, yeah, well, and found yeah. that, that Greeks was something other than a work of the devil. 
Yeah, they're absolutely fascinating. I had a chance to sit down with the owner of Anson Mill uh, after a event I went to, and he was, you know, he was started talking about the different grains of rice that are available in the South and all the different grains that they were bringing back and the, uh, like, we love the sea island, sea island red peas and the green pharaoh and, uh, and he was really interesting. He was talking about a rice that they used to grow in the South that almost looked like a, like a broken pasta noodle and it was, yeah. back in the day it was one of the most expensive uh, and coveted rice grains that you could buy, and it kind of fell by the wayside, and he's trying to revitalize that that grain. And it was just like the kind of the historical value mm-hmm. and the preservations of the seeds and all that stuff was just really fascinating. And the difference between, you know, uh, a grit a grit corn, uh, corn that they make grits out of, uh, as opposed to uh, corn that they... That's edible as opposed to, or, you know, edible fresh, as opposed to um, uh, polenta. It has to do with the dent. Like a dent corn is, is I believe, is more um, for grits, and the non-dent corn is uh, better for polenta. Now, what, what about this? sweet peas, or field peas versus sweet peas? Excuse me? What about field peas versus sweet peas? Oh, yeah. They, so they have a lot of uh, what we would call, up north I would call them beans, but they call them peas. They're, they're actually a smaller version of beans. So they're, you know, the field peas are more like the black-eyed peas um, that you get as opposed to sweet peas, which are kind of that first sign of spring that we love to, um, and that beautiful pastel green that we love to put on our menus when they first yeah, become available. Your salsa verde, I mean, I kept looking for um, tomatillas in there. That's the only salsa verde I knew, and you don't have tomatillas in any of your salsa verde recipes. No, our salsa verde recipes are more geared towards, they're, they're more herb-based, so we do. Yeah, they're green herbs, yeah. Yeah. So, so we're yeah. not, we don't, um, we, you know, we'll, we'll mix in a salsa verde to like a roasted tomatillo and make a different kind of sauce with that, but. Yeah, but well that's what like we Like in use. general. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to thaw some of it. I have it frozen from our garden. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, and, uh, the thing, I was very impressed with your take on pickles. Uh-huh. I mean, I always mean to make pickles, and I never do, because I don't know. I mean, you you do the actual canning of them, like sterilizing jars and things, don't you? Yeah, we don't do that in the restaurants um, because of, cause of the uh, health code restrictions. I mean, I do that personally at home. Oh, really? But, uh, we do a lot of uh, quick pickles and, and uh, cold temperature pickles here. I mean, it's kind of... That was a very uh, big part of the preservation, I guess, of the, you know, over, of the excess of the summer. They would preserve them to go through the winter, and it's just, I didn't really eat a ton of pickles before I, um, or pickle a lot of things before I moved to the south, and then, you know, you go in and you see all the different chow chows. Oh, yeah. And different types of pickles, the sweet pickles, the sour pickles, the... 
you know, the pickled corn, pickled, they'll, they'll pickle just about anything down here. Uh, so. Yeah, well, you, you know, uh, Sean McGrady at Husk, right? Uh-huh. And we, we were at an event at his Husk shortly after no, it opened, no, no, shortly you, after you, it you, opened. You're mixing it up. What I am? Sean, it's not McGrady. That was the restaurant. Oh, that was the restaurant. Okay. <laughs> Brock. Wrong, yeah. Wrong, wrong Sean guy. Brock. Sean Brock. I was, Sean trying, Brock. To, I was yeah. trying to catch his name. So, yeah. so, so the original husk idea was everything only in its season. Yes. So, so the only tomatoes available on his menu for six months out of the year are pickled green tomatoes, which are absolutely delicious. <laughs> yeah. He's, he kind of really, was the first uh, Southern chef to really kind of embrace that whole um, kind of cyclical uh, food source. Yeah, uh, he's yeah, honest. Whatever, whatever you get, you get. And he preserved a lot of stuff. I had one of my chefs at Stagione had worked with him for years, so it was really interesting um, to see him kind of his thought process, see him get ready for the winter. He would just get... All of a sudden, we had one entire walk-in filled with preserved pickles and tomatoes and all that stuff. It was it was really interesting. Now, what about chitlings? I'm not sure I was on well, you know, the, the chef from June Baby who got the, yeah, uh, yeah uh, we did, but not this year, the year before we were at Star Chefs in Brooklyn, and uh-huh. and, uh, and he had a demo class. Yeah, he had a cooking class, yeah, a cooking yeah. class on yeah. how to make chitlins. And he did it on chitlins. <laughs> yeah. It sort of smelled up the whole place, actually. <laughs> I bet they do. Yeah. They have a thing here called liver mush, it's, so it's like pig liver, pureed pig liver, and then they thicken it with... Um, with cornmeal, and that's yeah. actually pretty good. What is it? It sounds like that. Pig, well, pig, pig's liver with cornmeal. It sounds yeah, like it's called, that. What's it's called that? liver mush. Yeah, well, isn't that, there's, um, mush is this whole category, and in yeah. Pennsylvania, they have that, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch have that stuff. What's it called? Scra- scrapple. Scrapple. scrapple? Yeah. yeah. And it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, it uh, comes you, in like pound blocks, like like butter dough. Oh dear! <laughs> um, I thought that your uh, soup section was particularly interesting. You must like making soup. I do. I enjoy making soup, and I, I I've always been kind of the, the more simple, the better. And so I see like a lot of chefs include like a vegetable stock or a chicken stock in their soup, and basically I try to make. A stock out of the main ingredient and then, and then kind of, uh, use that as a puree so that when you have corn soup, the first thing that it's kind of like eating an ear of corn, only it's soup. And when you have, you know, the cauliflower soup or the mushroom soup, and I think a lot about like the textures, like the corn soup, I leave a little grainier because I want it to kind of feel like as if you're eating corn off the cob, whereas the, cauliflower soup when i puree that it comes out super super silky and it's very almost like velvety which is like a really neat mouthfeel and then kind of the mushroom soup lands somewhere in between so yeah i like that one with lobster in it <laughs> yeah that was lobster the, in the soup that was the corn soup oh yeah. that's it that's it okay yeah. But uh, it's, you know, a whole pound of lobster in there makes this very special soup <laughs> yeah yeah 
some interesting things that have sort of developed, like your uh, savory cannoli with tomato salad. I thought that was interesting. Sorry, I got uh, slightly distracted. But I saw you snuck in a lobster roll as a totem um, inclusive of New England, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's some definitely some things that I I put in that were, um, you know, kind of nods to New England, like I have a a um, lobster roll, and then I have a oyster or a, a cod dish yeah. with, a, with a clam chowder, and there's a bunch of things that I grew up eating that I've never really been able to get away from. I was all proud. I think the, the catfish one I did with the um, black-eyed peas and the collard greens was the first real southern dish I put on my menu. I was very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, I I hate catfish. That's, that's, I mean, I, yeah. I don't... You know, if, if you eat for a living, you really can't dislike a lot of stuff, and I really can't yeah. stand catfish. <laughs> and I yeah, also don't they, like pimento cheese. <laughs> yeah, they farm it here, and it's pretty clean. Uh huh. Yeah, so. I just, I don't know. I just had bad experiences with it, so I didn't like it. Yeah. They, they, uh. they, they farm it in Missouri, too, but that didn't make it good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's too bad. I enjoy it. Yeah. I like it. So, uh, you also have scattered throughout the book. Um, little essays on things such as uh, farmers, producers, uh-huh. um, yep. the owner of the Charlotte Fish Company. So you've right. met a, a lot of interesting people. Yeah, over the course of 18 years, I feel like I've gathered a good group of people. Um, and then we all, you know, one of the things I learned as a small 40-seat restaurant was that, you know, I, I needed to be part of the community and I felt like in order to be part of the community, I needed to support the community. So, you know, I found these people that are bringing, you know, that are Charlatans that are bringing fish in from the coast or Charlatans that are growing their own produce and selling it to us. And so I always really felt it like it was important to help. You know, I was hoping people would have me support my family. And so I was always felt if I could, it was important to help them support their family. Now, you have three distinctly different restaurants. Yeah. So did you draw um, from each of those for these recipes? Now, the first did, one yeah. is, is named after the uh, Barrington's, the town where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the second one is the small plates. Yeah, it's called good food. Good food. And then so. the third one is uh, uh, ended up being Italian. Yep, Stagione. Stagione. So that's what you did for the book. You drew from all those different I did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I felt like, uh, well, good food. I had my brother. He had worked with me for eight years, and we found a, a little place, a really, really neat space on a kind of a deserted street. And um, I thought that, you know, if the right mix went in, that the street would kind of uh, come together and, we would get, uh, you know, it would be kind of a restaurant destination street, which wound up happening. And then when I um, had talked to uh, someone that worked next door um, about opening a restaurant on Monfort, she told me that I couldn't, that it wasn't a good idea, that it's not a food destination street. And there was, there was no good food on Montford, and there never will be. And so I said, well, just to prove you wrong, <laughs> when I open it, I'm going to call it good food on Montford. Mm-hmm. 
And then, um, obviously, growing up, well, not obviously, but growing up in Rhode Island, you're, and working in Boston, you're surrounded by Italians and Italian food. Right. And I kind of feel very comfortable in that realm. It's a little... And so um, there was a space that became available, and it was a woman who had um, spent a lot of time in Europe, and uh, she had built a Tuscan, like a Tuscan revival, and it's just all, it's absolutely beautiful. She had stuff pulled over from Italy, and it's, you know, very ornate, very kind of classic Italian villa, and part of that became available, so... You know, I was very motivated by the space, and I was very uh, enthralled by the space. And it was just, there was nothing. There was no way you could do anything other than Italian That's in right. that spot. Yeah. Well, we, so I just thought I'd give it a try. We've had some good Italian meals in Providence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like well, on Atwell's Ave and, and Federal Hill and that whole area. Yeah. What's good. that big mm-hmm. one that we went to? The one everybody goes to. Big, very big place, crowded, busy. Uh, yeah. Oh, Alforno? That's it. Alforno, yeah. yeah. I think the yeah. best, reservation, best reservation we could get was 4.30, I think. <laughs> yeah. I worked for them for a little while. They're they're, they're great people, huh? They're wonderful people, yeah. Well, they deserve it. I guess, I think George died. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's sticking in my mind that he did, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think he had cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, when I, they opened a little spot in Boston, and I worked there for about six months. Well, anyhow, um, this, I think, is, uh, I, w- I would describe this as um, inspirational in the sense of your creative ideas, but also a very serviceable cookbook um, yeah. to put in your kitchen. Um, again, mm-hmm. listeners, it's Bruce Moffat Cooks, and the chef, uh, Bruce Moffat, um, introduces you. Bruce Moffat. Hmm? It's it's little little big Muffet. <laughs> little big Muffet. <laughs> Anyhow, a New England chef in a New South kitchen, and the spruce Muffet cooks. So, uh, success with the book, and continued Thank success in Charlotte, Bruce. It was good meeting you. Well, success in Pittsburgh. I lo- that was really cool city. I love the way like the mountains just came right down into. Right down into the city and into the you know to the river and the houses were all kind of built. Yeah, they're fine, aren't they? Yeah. Well, well, come on, come on it's back and really let pretty. Come on back and let us know you're coming. Yeah. All right, I will definitely do that. Okay, maybe you could open a restaurant in Pittsburgh. Seems to be a new one opening yeah. every week. <laughs> yeah. If I come back, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for 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 recommendations. Anyway, as, lo- as long as we don't. Hop a British Airways flight to London <laughs> between now and next week. We'll see you again, same time, same place. We hope you enjoyed today's program, and you'll join us then. And in the meantime... Bye-bye.